Hello and welcome to the Dance of the Soul. Regan Forston and I are here to support you going through life and we have this wonderful guest uh, and he is an author and a one who has walked many lives in his lifetime doing the work of, you know, spiritual work of, you know, doing doing what we want and um, Arthur Yevaberg is here to support um, this conversation. So welcome to the Dance of the Soul, Arthur. Thank we're you. so grateful you're here. Um, Regan is going to be here in a few minutes. He had something he had to do, and he texted me saying he'll be a few minutes later. And um, and so we're we're all good with just doing life like we normally do. And that's who, whenever somebody watches us, they learn that we just move with life and life moves with us and we just have that grace. So uh, Arthur, thank you for being here. And Thanks you know, having here, you're more than welcome. And we were having this conversation before we came on. I said, oh, wait a minute, it's time to go on. And we were talking about past lives and we were talking and talking about angels and he was, and you were saying, if you could repeat a little bit about what you were saying about that, I thought that was a good thing to step into this conversation. Well, you know, it's especially interesting to me in the, in the context of the book, because the book talks about a lot of traditions that have been around for a long time and have been accepted. And yet when people say things and categorize them as new age, there's like a dismissive quality to it sometimes. Anyway, we were talking about angels, how in past lives you might've been an angel or, or some other forms. And one of the questions that has come up in, in other religious traditions is the difference between human beings and angels, can angels sin? Can angels do things that are wrong? And in many ways, and in some traditions, people are seen as superior to angels because people have free will. They can make choices that are not necessarily in their own best interests or other people's best interests, but they do have that, that, that ability. And I don't know, in some traditions, angels do not have that ability. Angels are simply pure, as you said, more spiritually clean, mm -hmm. um, but they can sin. And the question becomes, you know, if, uh, to what extent it's better to be able to sin and not, and make the choice not to, as opposed to an angel, as it's characterized, that is not in the position of sinning. Okay, so I'm talking to Archangel Michael right now, and so I'm getting it from I'm getting it from you know the one who knows, because <laughs> if any of the angels are gonna do a little twisted turn, it'll be Archangel Michael because he loves his beer, he loves that, and the first question he asks is truly, what is a sin? Yes. We are not going to kill somebody. Yes, we're not going to harm anyone. We are into, we're not going to be into the humanness of this. I mean, in other words, he says, and, and I understand that there's the, the laws and the values of the universe. And then we have the human laws and rules, right? And right. a lot of the religions have put on, as he's saying, a lot of the quotation marks of what is a, a sin. You know, right. some religions will say drinking is a sin. Some will say that, um, you know, uh, maiming or, or harming another is a sin. And he says, if you go with those higher value systems, you know, do unto others as you would do yourself. You know, yes, we do not do those sins. Yet at the same time, he says, 
you know, having a beer is not a sin. You know, I like to have a beer. You know, Mother Mary will, will when somebody channels, you know, her, she'll ask them to eat something or drink something. It's not, um, it's not necessarily in those scenarios that you can context. So he's asking those that, that are in this question, as I'm hearing him say, is really define where does this word sin come from? And then have an understanding of where we come from with our understanding of what sin is. You know, it's, 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 it's a great question. And I think it's a, a real important question that sheds light on a, a couple of different areas. So the, the original term for sin in, in the Hebrew text in the Bible is chet, which basically is the same word that's used when an archer is shooting at a target but misses. Mm-hmm. So a, a sin in the, in, the, in, the, in the language of the Bible is basically to miss the mark. Now, if you go into Buddhism and some of the Eastern traditions, the notion of sin is behavior that is the result of ignorance. So for example, if there's a fence that's marked as an electrified fence, you know not to touch it because there will be certain consequences mm-hmm. to it. But there are behaviors that we can engage in that can also be harmful, but we don't realize it at the time because we just don't understand it. We don't perceive the dangers involved, the consequences. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't know better to do better. <laughs> so your choice of words is significant because when Jesus is on the cross, he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. In other words, it's they're, they're the people around him who have betrayed him and the authorities who are having him crucified did not have a good perspective as what the reality was. And that's why they were engaging in this kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. The Buddha will say exactly the same thing. The term Buddha means to the awakened one. In other words, before enlightenment, the Buddha and everybody else is asleep in the sense of being ignorant, not being, not seeing what's going on. And therefore they make mistakes. They miss the mark to use the language of, of the, the Hebrew text. Mm-hmm. So religions come in and I, you know, religions get a bad rap and for a lot of reasons, some of which are certainly legitimate and some of them are, are really unfortunate. Um, you know, there's a wonderful passage. I, I refer to it in the book, in the Brothers Karamasov, where Jesus actually comes back to life. He comes back, it's time for the second coming, and the bishop in Spain throws him in the dungeon. He recognizes him. This isn't out of ignorance. He recognizes him. And the bishop basically says to Jesus, look, the kind of spiritual freedom that you are advocating, people can't handle. People need <laughs> to be fed, and people need to feel safe. But this notion of confronting the, you know, the verities of the universe, these mysteries, this notion of taking personal responsibility for your own behavior, yet most people can't do that. And it's the church's responsibility to protect people from themselves. So he throws Jesus into the dungeon and does not allow this second coming. So religion can serve a lot of purposes, but many of these rules that you're talking about can't have a beer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, can't do 
X, Y, and Z that seem very, you know, minuscule and picayune and all these kinds of things. These are control mechanisms. Yes. These are ways of getting people to follow the um, dictates of the religious authorities. In Jesus's time, it was the Pharisees. In the Buddhist time, it was the Hindus. Uh, there are always these authorities who are trying to intimidate people and keep them from experiencing their own freedom and taking responsibilities for themselves. And I got to tell you, there are a lot of people who don't want to take responsibility for their behavior. That's why they follow all kinds of cult leaders or you know, all kinds of, they, they want to know, they want somebody to tell them you're doing the right thing. And all you have to do to get to heaven is do what I tell you. Ensuring mm -hmm. to a lot of people, but it's very inauthentic. You know, Soren Kierkegaard is a Danish existentialist. And basically he says, um, if you want to know where your approach to reality is, you don't want to ask other people. You don't want to be in a situation where there are other people. Three o'clock in the morning is a good time because there's no one else around and you're not working and you're not engaging, likely not engaging in the kinds of behaviors people use to distract themselves. Mm -hmm. you, you have to look at yourself in the mirror, ask yourself these questions and see what answers you without anybody else's help come up with. That kind of taking responsibility is very, very difficult for most people. And there are lots of authorities, religious authorities, cult authorities, who will take advantage of that fear and insecurity and play into it. I will give you your answers. I will take care of you. I will tell you how to get to heaven. Mm -hmm. But you have to listen to me. Yeah, the, um, the, that's, that's an approach, and most people buy into it because they're afraid to, to make the kinds of decisions on their own, because the notion that I'm going to make a decision that's going to have implications for all of eternity, whether it's future lifetimes or an eternity in heaven or hell, yeah, I don't want that job. So I'm, I'm going to trust somebody else to do it for me. The problem is, is that God created us all as individuals, and he doesn't need people to follow those kinds of religious authorities. Even in the Ten Commandments, uh, even in the biblical text, it says, thou shalt you know, love the Lord thy God. It doesn't say thou shalt love the Lord his God or her God or their God. Yes. It's your God. You have to engage. The, the divine command is that you have to engage on an individual level with um, the experience of the divine. And unless you're prepared to do that, you're going to keep coming back in one lifetime after another until you realize that, yeah, you know, I can take responsibility for myself. Exactly. And and that's, you know, to 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 step in here and I apologize for for stepping in this way. But, you know, like living with I'm 32 years marriage, you know, and I would say over 22 ish of those years was an alcoholic husband who's been drinking since he was 12, 14 years old. Right. And yeah. so there again is, is that he can say now being 11 years sober here his lessons that he learns now after being sober, going through what he went through in those, that, those years of drinking was the best thing that he ever could have learned to do with himself because he's becoming more and more pure 
I don't want to call it pure in the sense of like a glass of water, pure, clean, but a pure concept of life because being drunk, you're muggled, you're, you know, you're muddled, you know, you're mudded, you know, concepts. But now his relationship with his God, you know, and that's the thing is he does. I don't classify. I have a relationship with his God. He has a relationship with his God, you know, right. and he says, I have a relationship with mine because it is that individual and he has to do his journey with his enlightenment. I do right. my journey with my enlightenment and it, it's through the mud that we have to get there. And that's why, you know, we, we were given free choice. I have an understanding is to go through that. Now, some people have more humanness than more enlightenment. And that's where, and then we have, and that's why we have people who make drugs so that people get addicted. You know, that's why we have people who, you know, are millionaires trying to get to be more billionaires of billionaireishness. you know? And, and so we have that. And so it's like that tug and pull of, and I wouldn't call it devil work or it's humanness, you know, it's just pure humanness. And sometimes there's darkness in humanness as my understanding. And I, and this is a short version of a long, big conversation we could have, you know? Well, I think what you're calling humanness, uh, the Buddha would call ignorance. And I think for me, I would call it fear because being human, we all know we get sick. You know, mm -hmm. the, the big, story of the Buddha's life as Siddhartha before he became enlightened was that he didn't know about things like death or illness. And when he leaves the palace and goes to see what life is like, he comes across these experiences for the first time and he gets scared. You know, he wonders, you know, so what good is it? You know, you know what good is it? to accumulate all these possessions and all this money and whatever, if you in fact cannot take it with you. Mm -hmm. uh, the people surround themselves with all kinds of things. You know, people will have book collections or they'll have coin collections or they'll be workaholics. They'll do any number of things to give them some sense of security. But the reality is none of those things is going to provide the kind of security people want and need. What will provide the kind of security people want and need is, you know, what goes by the term enlightenment. In other words, an understanding and a perception of what the universe really is and what it is we're talking about. So, so to, you asked in the context of the book, the book does not, I'm, I'm not a preacher. You know, I'm not one of these people, you know, you see what you get. <laughs> I don't have these fancy robes and I don't have a big pulpit and I don't have an exotic accent and I certainly don't have a lot of degrees after my name. So I share the questions that I've come across and the kinds of answers I've come across and developed, but I make no cl claim that these are somehow ultimate answers for everybody. They're the ones mm -hmm. I've come across and I encourage people to broach the same types of questions and come up with their own answers and see if by communicating with one another, we can help each other along these paths. I mean, people are social animals, so you can do that. When the Buddha says, be ye lamps unto yourselves, what he's saying is, uh, my truth might not be your truth. You know, you mm -hmm. see exactly. what you see in your own way. 
there's a wonderful story in, in Hebrew. It's called a midrash. There's a wonderful story about Zeusia. Zeusia is this poor guy. He's, you know, he's had an ordinary life and all these kinds of things, but he's about to die, and he's scared. And his friends come up to him and say, "You know, why are you scared? You've been a good guy. You haven't, you know, killed anybody or anything like that." And he answers. He goes, "You know what? I've lived an ordinary life. I haven't done anything special." Look at somebody like Moses. Moses did this and that. He saved the Israelites. He did, you know, got the Ten Commandments. He got all this stuff. What have I done? I haven't done anything. One of his students tells him, look, God already made Moses. He doesn't need Moses. God created you, Zeusia, to be Zeusia. So when you go to heaven, God's not going to ask you, why were you not Moses? He's going to ask you, to what extent were you Zeusia? To what extent were you authentic? to your own life and the reason why God created you. Well, I think we all want to need to, to understand that. So the, to get back to your question about sin, the notion of sin means different things depending on the context. If some authority is telling you, don't do this because this is a sin, what, and they're, what they're really saying is, you have to listen to me, and here's an example where I'm going to exert my power over mm -hmm. you, and you can prove your allegiance to me by listening to me. That's one context, and that's useless. In fact, it's counterproductive. On mm -hmm. the other hand, if you engage in behaviors that instead of leading you to a greater appreciation of who you are and what your talents are, if you engage in those kinds of behaviors, they're all sins. I mean, this notion, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost silly. This notion that the devil is somehow going to be so easily recognized, you know, with a with this red suit and a pitchfork <laughs> and a horn exactly. and all that. I mean, that, that's just nonsense. But, it, but if it's seen as a metaphor, you know, what we need to be really careful of are those potential distractions that will keep us from realizing who we are. So for example, a beer. You mentioned a beer. Is it a sin to drink a beer? Well, in some religious traditions it is because you're not allowed to have anything to do with alcohol. And other relig religious traditions it isn't because they don't care. In fact, they use alcohol as part of their uh, rituals and this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Their ceremony, yes. But the honest answer is with all of these things, it depends. Why are you drinking the beer? If you are drinking the beer in order to get drunk, so you don't have to think about your life problems, yeah, then yeah, then it's a sin. On the other hand, if you're drinking a beer because you like to taste the beer and you're having a good time with some friends, that, that's fine. So there is no absolute in terms there of isn't. this. All depends on the context. And and Taoism. In, in the West, the West depends on its, its, its whole language and way of looking at things as it comes to Aristotle. So what does Aristotle teach? Things are themselves. A is A and B is B and A does not equal B. So a pencil is a pencil. Um, and it doesn't matter if a pencil is in a classroom or it's in a desk or wherever it is, a pencil is a pencil. And in Taoism, it's all about context. A pencil is a pencil only if you write with it. A pencil can be a weapon if you stab somebody in the eye with it. A pencil can be a bookmark if you put it in a book to mark where your pages are. In other words, a pencil 
is not a pencil irrespective of its environment. A, a, a pencil is, is a pencil depending on how it's used. Well, the same is true of sin. The same behavior can be a sin or not, depending on what the motivation of the behavior is. There's a great Buddhist story of these two Buddhist monks who are walking along. They come to a river and there's this beautiful woman waiting to cross the river. She can't uh, cross the river. So one of the monks offers to help. He picks her up, walks, you know, carries her across the river, puts her down, and the two monks keep going. You know, some miles later, one monk goes to the other one. I can't believe you picked up, you touched that woman. Don't you know in our sect, you're not allowed to touch women. And the other monk says to him, are you still carrying around that woman? I put her down by the river. In other words, one <laughs> who had not even touched the woman was still thinking and obsessed with this experience with this woman. Whereas the first monk picked her up, needed, she needed to be carried across the river. He picked her up, carried her, and then let it go. So was touching the woman a sin? In the one case, it was a sin because it was an obsession. In the other case, it wasn't a sin because he was simply doing what needed to be done. The irony is, who's the sinner? The one who didn't touch the woman because his whole mindset was focused on something that was um, indifferent to what the situation demanded. It's, it, you know, Jesus says exactly the same thing in the New Testament. It's not what people do. It's what's in their hearts when they do it. Exactly. You know, it's, it's in your mouth. It's what comes out of your mouth when you talk. It's not, you know, if you follow these rituals in public so that people think you're pious, it's what's in your heart when you do it. So sin, just like pencils and everything else, get their definition and their, their marching orders depending on the context and what's in the heart of the people who are uh, engaging in the behavior. You know, two people can do exactly the same thing. And in one case, it's a sin and, and, and terrible and counterproductive. And in another case, it's, it's, it's totally innocent with no repercussions whatsoever. I so concur. And I think this is a good way station because Regan is here and I'd like to bring him in. But I oh, love cool. this conversation we're having because it's <laughs> it, it, it's a bigger conversation because, you know, and, and that's what I think what we're going through right now with all these eclipses and and this awakening that we're going through right now. It's about coming into our greater good and a lot of it is cleaning out what's in our mind what are we carrying of other people's actions you know we're bringing up a lot of things that happened during the slavery time and and it's a contradiction it's a conflict a very confusing time because it's like you know who's carrying what and i'm not saying it's right what happened i totally am saying that i'm not saying that i mean i'm just saying where are we at in our mindsets to be able to move forward in a lighter set. Uh, are we the monk who's carrying the, uh, you know, the, the story of the other guy who, who picked up the woman when it was against the, 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 the belief systems, you know, it's like, what are we truly carrying? And this is a time for us to um, evolve into a, 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 an understanding what our mind and our emotions are doing with us. Right. And I think the first step in addressing that 
is to look within. As Jean-Paul Sartre was a French existentialist around the time of World War II. Um, in his play, No Exit, he says, hell is other people. So what did he mean by that? What he meant is that if we look at our behaviors, how much of our behavior is motivated, afraid of other people or wanting to gain other people's approval or wanting to impress other people. But when we are by ourselves and introspective and try to behave in a way that is authentic with integrity, the term integrity comes is the same root as the word integer. In other words, oneness. To what extent are we one with ourselves? And to be one with ourselves is to act in a way where our beliefs and our behavior are harmonious. So instead of getting distracted by the news and, you know, every day it's a crisis. And, every, and, and if you look at the verbs and the adjectives, no one just talks. People are outraged or they're furious or they're this and that. There are all these extreme emotional terms as opposed. And if, if we're serious about the notion of emanating peace, we have to be at peace with ourselves. We can't allow ourselves to be pulled in a number of different directions across purposes. So something like meditation may come across as, as a practice that's self-centered or even narcissistic. How can you sit at peace and be meditating when there's a war in the Ukraine and people are starving to death in Africa and people have cancer and this and that and the other? Well, the problem is I can't do anything that's helpful for anybody if I'm in a situation where I'm in conflicting with myself. I have to be in a state of mind where I have calmed my distractions and I have unified my energies. And only then can I go out and do the kinds of things that my talents will allow me to do. So if people want to help, and don't want to just be outraged or yell and look over their shoulders to see who's watching them and listening to them and all this kind of stuff. The first place to look is within. What do you want to do? What do you really, truly want to do? Not what the Bible says, not what the Buddha says, not what anybody, what your father says, or your mother says, or the church says. What do you really want to do? And then do it. Right. If you're really sincere about what it is you want to do, then you do it and don't worry about the consequences. That's where it comes down to where you let God take care of God's work. I mean, God is God. There's a reason why he's God. That's why he has that job. Albert Camus, another existentialist from France, he writes this wonderful plague. It takes place in the Middle Ages, and he's a doctor in the small town, and he's frantic because people are dying of the bubonic plague. He can't find a cure. Well, to make a short story shorter, what does he finally realize? He's trying to find a cure for the bubonic plague, not to find a cure for the bubonic plague. He's trying to find a cure because that's what doctors do, and he's a doctor. So he's going to work to find a cure for the bubonic plague, whether he finds a cure or not is totally irrelevant. He's going to do the work that he needs to do. Well, guess what? In the Bhagavad Gita, in Hinduism, Krishna is talking to Arjuna. Arjuna is this warrior. He's about to go into this great war between these two families. They're all related. And he anticipates the number of people who are going to die in this war at his hand, who are related to him. He doesn't know he wants to do it. And Krishna tells Arjuna, 
you are a warrior. And as a warrior, you have to do what a warrior does with honesty and integrity and all that goes with that. In terms of the results, karma and all those other forces will work that stuff out. But you were born into this lifetime as a warrior in order to be a warrior. So do what you need to do and stop thinking about it and stop bemoaning it and all that kind of stuff. Follow your nature. Well, if everybody would stop listening to everybody's voices, telling them, pulling them, do this, do that. You're going to go to heaven if you do this. You're going to go to hell if you don't listen to me. People could develop and project the kind of peace that can ultimately lead to broader peaceful feelings around the world. By the way, I see the irony in this. Arthur, what are you doing? You're saying that people shouldn't listen to other people and you're telling them what to do. You're doing exactly the same thing. I'm not because what I'm telling people to do is to listen to themselves. Don't listen to me. The Buddha said exactly the same thing. If what I say makes sense to you, only then should you follow it. But if it doesn't make sense to you, do something else. Follow somebody else. If, there are, if you look at how many self-help books there are in the bookstores, I mean, there's row after row after row of these self-help books. And they're all saying, they're all talking as if there's some formula to peace that, you know, one size fits all. That's not what life is. You know, every individual is created by the divine, call it what you will. Every individual is created by the divine for with a particular skill set, with a particular nature. Can't be one size fits all. You do what you can do with what you have and then let it go. Just do what you need to do. And let it go. Exactly. I know a lot of times in my sessions, what I end up doing is saying, okay, here's a truth. Put it in your back pocket. Wear it around for a while. See what you want to take from it. Decide what you're not. So, um, Regan, thank you for hey. showing up. I know you've had a busy <laughs> Monday. I don't know what's happening. Oh. Yeah, I know it's been a busy Monday. And so, welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank this you. is Arthur. And Arthur, this is Regan. Hey, and and uh, it's it, this has been an amazing conversation we're having. And I... I I, I like the way Arthur's. Uh, I've been. I was when I, I had to bear e their uh, emails and everything. There was so much in there, and I had to. It took me a while to find it, but I was listening to you guys on, uh, on uh, live on uh, YouTube, so I got a lot of the, uh, the gist of the conversation. Mm -hmm. But Arthur, I think that's good. It's like, it, it's almost. I almost wish that in school, that um, what would be required is this uh, study of of many different religious teachings so people could kind of get more of a gist of what this is all about because when you're confined to one teaching it just eliminates uh so much of what the whole truth is you know i, I think that's true but i don't i think the content is almost immaterial you know i worked with um adolescents and i was a head of school you know for a good 40 years and what i noticed it almost didn't matter what the subject was I, I, the, the conversation I would have with teachers all the time is you, you don't teach math and you don't teach history and you don't teach, you teach children. So the notion of teaching is not specific to the subject matter. It's specific to the kid who's sitting in front of you. Most mm -hmm. teachers, unfortunately, see kids as empty vessels. You know, they're, they're just empty pie, they're empty vessels. And it's my job as the teacher to fill that pot, that vessel with the information I have to provide. It's yeah. just not true. 
what a good teacher does is makes himself irrelevant. The te a good teacher gives the student the skills so that the student can come up with their own answers as to the kinds of questions that come across. The real meaningful questions in life are not factual. You know, you know, with all due respect to flatliners, all this kind of flat earthers and all this kind of stuff, you can find out if the earth is round or not. You know, there, there's, there are truths. You know, this is a big debate in epistemology. How do we know things? There are certain truths that are facts in other words, they're objective that you can exchange with other people. You can test and you can measure, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, those are easy. The real questions that are posed by life are not about facts. They're not about objective. They're, they're, they're subjective. In other words, mm -hmm. when, I asked, when I was a history teacher, I never asked a question, when was George Washington born? Or you know, what was the, the Battle of Saratoga? I would ask questions like, what makes a good president? And was George Washington a good president? If I wanted students to be able to explain to me that they knew who Abraham Lincoln was, I'd ask, would George Washington think Abraham Lincoln was a good president? In other words, the kinds of things that are valuable, the skills that are valuable, that everybody talks, says they want, but don't really, has to do with critical thinking skills. When, a, when someone is at a job or you're doing a podcast and you're trying to decide which guests to have on your program or how to run the budget and what your priorities should be, these aren't factual questions. These are subjective questions. You have to look at your audience. You have to look at your resources and make value judgments as to how to proceed. Well, the way schools can do that is by putting students in the position of having practice to make those kinds of decisions. But most people don't really want that. What they want schools to do is like an assembly line. And if you think about how schools operate for the most part, they are assembly line. You go in, you show up at X amount of time and you spend this much time doing this and that much time doing that. And then you have, you know, the bell, final bell goes off and people go home and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The real practical function of schools, especially in Western society, is not the liberal arts approach that was advocated by Socrates, you know, way back when with the academy in Greece. We want people to be able to find jobs in, 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 in the workplace so that the economy can work. What people don't realize, what, what the, that model doesn't realize is that you can produce, you can mass produce workers who can be trained to do X. The problem is true progress, true genius, true advances take place when people are passionate about what they do. When people are trained in an assembly line type of fashion to simply re, you know, regurgitate what has been told to them, you'll, you may get that work regurgitated. You will get zero creativity. You'll get zero innovation. Uh, Alan Watts, and I'm sure other people have said the same thing. If you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. So what you want to do is to get students to be find out what makes them passionate, what makes them really happy, to get them to throw themselves into that. And by getting in touch with their own nature and figuring out how they can apply what they love to do in the workplace, 
you know what, do what you love, the money will follow. Society, and this is not some woo-woo, you know, I gotta tell you, you're not gonna meet more boring, um, practical, rational people than me. I do not take chances. I am very risk averse. <laughs> I don't take chances, but I know what works. And the fact of the matter is, rote training, mass produced, it's not that it's a sin, it just doesn't work. If you want innovation, if you want creativity, if you want to know where the new ideas that are going to make people a lot of money come from, you don't go to those schools where it's training. You go to those schools where people are taught how to think independently. Those schools who make it safe for kids to think independently, that there are no stupid questions, but there are scary questions that people are afraid to ask. Find the right settings and the answers will emerge the way you need them to be. You know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that we are so corporate based, but not because corporations are sinful or anything like that. Corporations simply have a different agenda. Mm -hmm. That agenda is not about sparking creativity and innovation. It, the, the, that agenda is more of the same. And exactly. more, of the, more of the same is not, it has not solved the questions that we have today, because if they did, we wouldn't have those questions today. So more of the same is never going to be the answer. You have to be able to take the chance to be innovative, to be imaginative, and not worry that you know people are going to look down on you or you're not. It's not going to be acceptable and all those kinds of things. You know, I know. I Sorry. yeah. I um. We, I actually work in an elementary school. And oh. so with me, you know, it's like I can see where like the fifth and sixth graders, if they brought in like construction people and sh and showed them exactly why we use fractions, you know, we would get more inspiration of of understanding the fractions. If we brought in, let's say, scientists, we understand what liters are compared to gallons. And, you know, it's like it's all those different things that that we haven't brought in examples of what life can be to bring in that inspiration of, of things to do. And it's not necessarily that we always have to do something, but, you know, we have different things to do. And I always say, you know, it's like we have different students that have buckets, you know, the there's different buckets that we, you know, our knowledge falls into. Some people have bigger holes, you know, so those, we have to keep dumping information in so that they can hopefully in a year fill in a bucket, let's say. Right. Like with me, dyslexia, you know, they could have taught me the same thing for five years and I wouldn't get it except for on the fifth year. So, I mean, it, it's it's that they needed to fill in a bucket. But it's I've always had the understanding that I'm a seed planner. I plant seeds. I plant ideas. I plant knowledge. And it's up to them, future life. It's up to other people to till the dirt, to till the knowledge. I've had students who come back to me and said, you know, Mrs. Venter, you told me something. You know, I had a hood on and you told me to take it off before I went into school. And and they said, you know, they didn't understand. You know, I didn't understand. I said, well, you know what? There's rules I don't always agree with, but I still need to follow them because it helps the greater good to happen. Yeah. I met him at a pizza place. He says, Mrs. Venter, you were there. And it took me about five years to figure out that was a true statement. If I work with the rules for my greater good, then I end up going places. But if I fight the rules, 
then, then I don't go places. And it was, you know, so I'm a seed planner. And, and Regan, what do you think about this? You know, it's well, like. <clears throat> yeah, I, <laughs> I was thinking back when, when Arthur was talking about, um, you know, all these, all the different religions and everything. And one thing I like about uh, what we've found in our research uh, through the Newton Institute as we've had 70,000 people now spend a few hours in the afterlife and come back. Um, everybody's question, because they, my, my clients, they prepare a list of questions that they want to ask if they go to he like heaven or the afterlife. And uh, over there, the, there's a, count, every, a council shows up for everybody. Uh, it's usually very unique. Um, we always, we're, as researchers, we'll say, well, like this last week, uh, a client of mine, I said, she said, uh, her guide took her to the council. So now she's at the council. And I first thing we do is say, well, let, uh, tell me, are you inside or outside? What's the what's it like? And usually it's uh, it reminds me like Greek temples or something. There's usually seems to be like marble and whatever. Mm. Um, and the, the council was sitting um, like in a in a in a straight across the table. She was standing just in front of them, like in the middle. And then I'd say, um, okay, how many count from left to right? How many elders you have? She had five. There was four that looked, I said, are they male or female? She said, well, they're kind of androgynous, but seem a little more male-ish. And then the fifth one was more of a, like a hologram. And it was a female form uh, of a guide or an elder. And um, one of the questions that she asked was, um, you know, what's the, I'm here, here I am in heaven now. Tell me what's the one religion? You know, which one should I follow? Because that's the one I want to follow. And in a sense, they said, oh, you know, pick one if you want one. <laughs> you know, in other words, uh, just like you were saying, Arthur, it's like up to each individual to discover for themselves what they need to to kind of fill their cup up, you know. And it may be being a Christian in this life or maybe a Muslim, because in this lifetime, that's what what, you know, depending on what their mission is and what they're, they hope to learn and everything. Uh, like I found in a few past lives I've visited before that um, in one life I was uh, a Roman soldier and I was crucifying Christians on crosses. In another lifetime I was a monk and I got martyred. I got I remember getting arrows in my chest for um, trying to out the Catholic Church for the corruption uh, that was going on. So they didn't want me around, you know, it's like, phew, you know. Uh, and so it seems like what we're finding out in this research is that Everybody needs to discover what their mission is and then find the right tools and the right the right teachings and things for them to to get where they want, you know, for what their mission is. So that gave me a lot of um, a lot of uh, empathy for people who are all these different religions. You know, like I shouldn't go to them and say, hey, you're in the wrong one, you know, because maybe that's exactly where they need to be. And like you're saying, we're individuals. We need to find out what what we need, not what we're just like, you know, lined up to be because we grew up in a Catholic family. Does that mean we have to be Catholic, you know? Uh, so uh, that's why I think in college, why there's so, you know, there's so much uh, turmoil with the young people because they finally get to a place where they can think for themselves. You know, if you get to a good college and then all of a sudden they go, wow, what my parents taught me, that's that doesn't fit me or the religion doesn't fit me or the political you know, party doesn't fit me because they begin to think for themselves. So I think what you're doing, Arthur, and that is you're you're really doing a, a good service here, trying to sh uh, show people that they need to be an individual 
find out what fits them and go that route, you know, rather than just following along like a, like a sheep, you know, with everybody else. You know, it's, it's, it, it is interesting. And I think you're right in terms of this research, <clears throat> you know, this monotheistic approach is difficult because it suggests that there's only one right approach. And the reality is, is that every situation and every context is different. So you have to find the one that fits. But to get back to Natasha, your, your idea about rules, this is not, no one is advocating, and I'm certainly not advocating this business of, well, you know, you do what you want and everything will be fine. It's, it's not because discipline, I used to tell teachers all the time, nothing happens without discipline, nothing happens without structure, because it's the structure and the discipline that gives you the setting in which you can learn what mm -hmm. it is you need to learn. So for example, to pick a silly example, traffic lights. It's a rule that green, it means go and red means stop. But it's a, it's a, what's called a convention. It's not an absolute. The fact of the matter is, it could be red means go. It might make more sense for red to mean go. Red is the color of fire and that kind of thing. And maybe something like blue should be stopped because it's a more calming picture, et cetera. But it doesn't matter what the color is, but the principle that we have to have a way of structuring traffic in such a way that people don't drive into each other and kill each other. The principle is the absolute. And so people who want to be able to do whatever they want, well, I want to be able to drive wherever I want. And I don't have to pay attention to streetlights and things like that. They die, right? And a society that is built on a lack of discipline and structure falls apart because it's just mm -hmm. chaotic. But people need to understand that it's not just if the light is green because that's the way God said it should be and everybody has to do it. And if you think it, it has, if, if you don't understand that it has to be green, well, you're just going to be sinning and go to hell. Mm -hmm. People do need to understand that proper rules, helpful rules, constructive rules have a purpose. They have an understanding. You, you know, this business of telling kids you know, you do it because I say so. It's, it's not only wrong, but it, it, it foments resistance. Because if you, you know, you probably remember yourself when you were adolescents and things like that. You simply tell adolescents, do this because I said so. Their immediate reaction is, well, you're not the boss of me. But if you can help kids understand the nature of rules, that the fact of the matter is good rules are essential for kids to be able to do what they want to do. Well, you've won the battle. I mean, you know, you, you tell a kid, you have to wear a batting helmet because I told you to. He'll say, yeah, you're not the boss of me. But you explain to a kid, you have to wear a batting helmet because if you get hit in the head with a baseball, it's going to knock you out. You're not going to be able to play the game you want to play. That makes sense to him. You know, you mm -hmm. can understand. It's a cause and effect. We have to bring cause and effect back into life. You know, you you don't run a you don't run a red light because it's green the other way and you don't want to get hit. It's not because it's, you know, and then you get the cops who tell you there's rules that to make sure that you understand that we don't want you to get hurt, you know? Well, yeah, you know, that's another thing. Arthur is I remember uh, growing up Catholic, which was a good foundation for me, so I 
have nothing against being Catholic, but I could have had so much more appreciation for being Catholic if they would explain to me what these rituals meant. You know, instead of we, why, why are we like it's a station of the cross? You know, why do they have incense and they're doing this? You know, why, why, you know, why do we instead of just go to confession and tell them all the bad things you did, if to tell be you know what the purpose was behind it, you know, so that so that you would have someone to talk to and somebody that could advise you on being better, and because of that, then you have a happier life. You know, instead of you got to go because if you don't, you're going to die. You know, you have this sin on your thing, you're going to go to hell. If you have this, you're going to go to purgatory. I mean, that's all. It was like, you know, we did we just didn't know like what any of the rituals that they that they had meant. You know, so um, I think if they would have explained that, if they had explained it, yeah. they would be more likely to develop more committed Catholics. Instead. Right, and the rituals would mean something. You know. And oh, you'd realize because they can relate to it as opposed yeah. to it's all about fear and punishment and all this kind of thing. Well, the faster I can get out of church and be on my own, the better, you know, it's just counter. Again, it's not, it's not a sin or not sin. It's counterproductive. Yeah. I remember what didn't make any sense to me in, in Catholicism, you know, drinking isn't necessarily bad. I mean, I remember my dad having a few beers at Oktoberfest when they'd have it at the thing. But in some of my friends, the, the Protestant church they were going to, you were forbidden to drink. And then I read in the Bible where God's at a, at a wedding and he changes water into wine. And I'm exactly. thinking, what? You know, that doesn't make it, you know, why did all of a sudden could they drink back then and now they can't, you know? So again, it's about, and my father pulled me aside at Oktoberfest. He taught me one of the biggest lessons. It was when I was like 12 or 13. It was the first time I saw my dad a little tipsy. He was he was a little silly because he'd had a couple of beers, and he pulled me aside and he said, uh, he said, Regan, the uh, the best thing to learn in life is that everything in moderation. In other words, said don't drink and get drunk and be irresponsible. But if you want to have a few drinks once in a while, it's okay. Like you were saying, you know. So I that was a big lesson that day, you know. And I've always thought of it many times about just be moderate and everything, you know. And the Dalai Lama, you know, when the Dalai Lama asks what's his religion, he says kindness, kindness. you know. Yeah. And like we say, that love is the one religion. You know, kindness and love is the one religion. You know, if we, you, and, and, and all the religions speak about that, you know, but then they get into all this other stuff to make it, you know, complicated. Because I remember Constantine, from the stories that I heard, um, uh, he, he's the one that allowed Christianity to become the 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 religion of the uh, of that time but he didn't want to become a christian until he was about ready to die because he wanted to do all the bad things he could do and then be forgiven just before he passed away you know so i mean that was this the whole miss you know i mean the, the whole um <laughs> it's a way of using religion in the very in a very wrong way you know uh that way so well, Constantine was worried about keeping the Roman Empire together. And that was a very, there was a fear that if people had creative thinking when it came to religion, they wouldn't be unified enough. Uh, in, in France, you had the same thing when, um, uh, when the Catholic Church was all powerful in, in, in France, there was the same concern. So when Napoleon came to power, he didn't care what religion people were. 
He was simply care. He did care about whether people were loyal to France. And if you were loyal to France, you could worship any God you wanted. Just, you know, show up when you've been drafted into the army. I, I, I think this notion of, you know, to say that all religion is love is, is fine. But what is imprecise about it, I, I prefer to think of it in terms of the sun. The sun is the source, but it emanates energy. And that energy takes different forms in different places at different times. So the same energy is in a different form, say in fish under the sea or in cactuses here in Tucson or you know, in, in stars, I mean, anywhere. But the point of the matter is, it's love is the source, but it doesn't stay in the source. It emanates mm -hmm. from the source and takes different forms in different places. You know, it, it, and it's important to understand that because since the context will be different, you know, if I've got a toothache, I don't want to go to an artist. And if I <laughs> want to appreciate, you know, uh, Van Gogh and things like that, honestly, I don't go to a dentist. I go to people who can help me. Now, it's not that, you know, Van Gogh is right and some dentist is wrong or that the dentist is right or Van Gogh is wrong. It, it depends on what you want. It depends on what you need. It depends what the circumstances demand. I, I, don't, I don't know that we're prepared. See, even in the West, you, you hear talk like, you know, democracy is some kind of an absolute virtue. And I, you know, I would say in class when we talk about political science, how many of you, when you are sick and you go to the doctor, what do you do? Do you really ask the doctor for his opinion and then go to the waiting room and ask all the other patients, this is what the doctor says, let's have a vote and see what, whether I should take this medicine or not. Depending on what the nature of the problem is, sometimes democracy makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. This notion that everything has to be the same all the time, every place, in every situation, it's just not what life is. Alan yeah. Watts says, he flies over the United States all the time. He used to fly over the United States all the time. He could tell where nature was and he could tell where people were. Why? You fly over nature, nature, everything's curves and irregular and unbalanced and this and that. It all weaves back and forth. You fly over civilization, quote unquote, it's all straight lines. You have farm, whether it's farmland and it's all in rows or cities where you have streets and things like that. The source of life in nature is not one size fits all. But if you look, you know, anybody who flies goes anywhere in the country, you can go to a mall in Boston, you can go to a mall here in Tucson, you can go to a mall anywhere. They're all the same. You could be anywhere. The, the, the idea of that there are distinctions between different cities and different ways of shopping and different recipes and all that. Yeah, it's, it's, everything's become standardized and that that's not healthy. It isn't. No, it's not. And that's what I'm afraid that school is, you know, in my observation, presenting, you know. Right. And, you know, we've been talking a lot in my school, at least that, you know, because after the COVID situation and, you know, we're kind of in that scenario and like I was, you know, I was talking to somebody and, and, you know, the realization came that, you know, as a, as a world, we're kind of in this, like a tornado went through and we're in like the, the second and th third year of, of building our place back, you know, 
and we're trying to get our footing back. And it depends on how much we've been stressed during that time, depends on where we're at in that recovery time. And then we're talking about um, like another thing video came through and you know, and I was watching a TED talk about all the red dyes and the yellow dyes. And I know us in the United States are really bombarded by a lot of the dyes, the red dye. You know, it's like, and in my school, you know, there's kids that bring chips and what's in chips, the red dyes, the yellow dyes and all that kind of stuff. And they're known for a lot of the fiery attitudes that we're having right now and the blown up attitudes that we're having right now. And, and it's like, where we at in society is it's really interesting to find out how to negotiate what's being put upon us, our diets, our food, our, our TVs, our video games, and how to defer to our own understandings, our own truths and our own knowings. And that's where we're going to have to figure out what feels right in our gut you know, and I'm not saying going and shooting people up at a, at a, at a school is not the right gut feeling, you know, because that goes against all the rules of, of the universe, you know, do not harm other people. You know, it is about doing better for our society. It's about being kind to our fellow man. Like I tell kids on the playground, we don't have to be friends, but we can be friendly. You know, we can have a friendly action with a friendly knowing, you know, and, and how do we do that for each other? We have to move on from the past. We have to move on from where we're at because it's about the evolution. Yeah, Arthur, matter of fact, uh, since we're getting close to the end of the hour, I was thinking because you, since you made this your study and studying all the, you know, so many different teachings and everything, I, I'm guessing you have uh, compared to the average person, a much bigger picture of spirituality, of religion. So if you were um, giving a talk and somebody asked you, uh, okay, with all these different paths and everything you've, you've studied, which one do you think has more pieces to the puzzle than anybody else? In other words, if somebody just said, well, I just want to go to the one they seem to have, they seem to have the most, you know, there of any of them. Is there a particular a religious path you think that seems to be, I don't say smarter, or just someone who seems to have more of the picture of what God is and, and how to uh, run your life? Would, would you have a, a favorite? Not only do I not have a favorite, and if, if you look <laughs> through the book, see I pick and choose from a bunch of different religious traditions. Uh -huh. But I would say that people are starting, somebody asks that question, and it's certainly understandable, they're looking outward when the first step is they should be looking inward. So instead of looking outward, what answers are out there? First, they need to look inward and identify what am I, what am I worried about? What do I think is going to happen after I die? When I'm on my deathbed and I look back on my life, what am I going to be proud of and what am I not going to be proud of? Once people are introspective and they look at their lives and look at their own priorities, then they can look out at these different religious traditions and then pick and choose what makes sense to them. And what they will find is that, you know, this religious tradition has this answer that makes sense to me. That religious tradition has a different answer. I don't like that, but they have something mm -hmm. else that offers that makes me feel better you know it, it, labels are very dangerous 
when, mm-hmm. when God, uh, when Moses uh, asks God for God's name, God doesn't answer. He says, I will be who I will be. That's not a name. But people are so desperate for names. They took that, the, the acronym, the yud heh vav and turned it into, became anglicized into Jehovah. So all of a sudden, this name emerges. And the whole point of the name was that it wasn't a name. Well, it's the same thing with religions. You know, if, if I identify myself as Jew or Christian or Hindu or whatever it is, yeah. I'm forcing myself into a box of all these different characteristics. That makes all sense. Arthur. And everybody has a responsibility to be authentically who they are. <clears throat> They're going to screw themselves in some box. Mm-hmm. Reconcile that box with what their own nature is. Well, you know what's interesting, Arthur, when when my clients are on the other side and they're in this heavenly world and they ask the the beings over there where God is, they, Uh, in a sense, they kind of go like, you know, like he's so it's so greater that he's not like a person or somebody can go up and say hi to it's but they say they just feel the presence at a deeper level than they do down here. But that God is just that great that even in this heavenly world it's it's he's beyond that even you know so well again look at the analogy of sunlight right where in the world you know where is the right sunlight is it in the plants on someone's lawn or is it the right sunlight in fish under the sea or is it the right light at the antarctic so no i mean it's all light but it's perceived differently and that's yeah good way that's a good analogy yeah. So Re, uh, Veronica says she really loved the show tonight. She's so oh, grateful. Thanks, yeah, it, it, it's it's amazing. We had another comment here about um, 8 billion human beings, 8 billion worlds, one God. Right. You know, and that's the thing is, is that, you know, I got this image one time. Yeah. How many people are in this world? That's how many beliefs, emotions, and and understandings that we have, you know, and then that's how many understandings of the beloved or the greater or the light or whatever you want to call this being that it, that people want to believe in that's greater than us. But we are that too. We were taken off of that, right. you know, it, so. It has a teaching to the effect of anybody who commits murder, it's as if they've destroyed an entire universe. It sounds ridiculous, but if you think about it, every, since everybody has a unique perspective on the universe, everybody lives in a different universe. So if mm-hmm. you destroy an individual by eliminating their life, you've destroyed their perception of the universe and you've really mm-hmm. effectively destroyed a whole universe. It's mm-hmm. true. Exactly. I think that's a perfect place to to leave this. So Arthur, thank you so much for being here. How can people you. get your information? How um how can they reach you if you want to do that? I didn't I don't know if there was an email in that the the bio that you sent me, but um but I how do and my name is you know on the screen and all that. So there's a website arthuryavelberg.com. If you go to Barnes and Noble or Amazon.com and you just enter my last name, the book will show up, uh, Theology for the Rest of Us. I have an email address, ayavelberg at outlook.com. One of the nicest results of this whole business of the book has been the number of people with whom I've had the opportunity to talk and exchange ideas. There's a Facebook group page, a Theology for the Rest of Us. People post things. 
we bounce ideas off of each other and things like that. That's a, you, that's a great title. That's a great title. Yeah, because it's not for people who have already had mystical experiences and know for certainty what God is all about. Mm -hmm. It's not for academics who have their own ideas as to what God is all about. It's about those of us who are searching, who are not so sure, but would like to be able to help each other along the way. And um, I got to tell you, as a Catholic, I'll appreciate this. I think that's how the Holy Spirit works. You know, the Holy Spirit brings people together mm -hmm. or with vibrations, you know, common auras and things like that. That's how people come together. It's not mm -hmm. an accident. You know, lying is a sin, not because it's immoral. When we pretend and we lie, we fool those people who could be kindred spirits into thinking we're somebody else. But if we're authentic, if we don't lie, it's not that that's such a big deal morally. But if we present ourselves as we are, people can recognize us and interact with us in an honest, open way and really help each other. One of the worst things that can happen if you lie on your resume is get the job, because if you're not qualified for the job, you may get it, but you'll be miserable at it and you'll be fired in no time. So uh, honesty uh, is the best policy. Yeah. That's yeah. why I always say vulnerability is our greatest strength, you know? Yeah, I like um, Arthur. I mean, everything you said when you're when you're talking there, it's you put it very. You, you, I like the way you put things. Is that it? Just it just seems like when you think about it, it's it's common sense. It just go, yeah. yeah why do we? You know, it's just like seems seems like nowadays common sense just gets thrown out the window. You know, because of people's biases and and right. you know they they want their their. They don't want to disturb what they believe, you know, somehow that they don't want to go beyond that. Um, and that does a lot of harm. You know, that's where all the religious wars came in, you know, because everybody wanted everybody to think just like them. Um, right. So I'm watching uh, uh, online right now. It's a very interesting. I can't wait to see where it goes. It's something new on Netflix and it's called the silo and it the silo S-I-L-O. And um, people live in a silo, goes like 170 levels down. And uh, it's been, they have their, they have this thing where they celebrate every year and it's uh, to celebrate when they say 150 years ago, people tried to break out of the silo and the rebellion was squashed. But all of the hit, they, they talk about the people that rebellion erased all the history of the world and everything. So the people live in the silo only know what they know from being in this silo. And, but there's some people there that are the free thinkers and they try to squash them, you know, cause they want, everybody has to follow along. Everybody right. has to do exactly as the elders or whatever they're on top say, but there's a few people that, that uh, if you say the words, if you say the words, I want to leave the silo and you say those words, there's no going back. They put you in a, like a little spacesuit everybody gets and watches on the big screen is they go out and they watch them, which looks like they die because they've told them that outside the silo, you're going to die. There's nothing there, but somebody found an old hard drive that they were, you know, from hundreds of years ago and they were able to break into it and it shows the outside with birds and everything like this. So there's some people there that just know that they're being lied to. They become free thinkers. And it's just so 
it's I can't I the it's got like a ninety six percent rating or something on on Rotten Tomatoes because it really makes you think and it just shows society, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And just what you're talking about, Arthur, that we're all so programmed, we always have to follow along, and uh, I think that's why anytime we see a movie with the free thinker, we love those movies because we kind of wished we could be that way, you know, that we could be out, you know, look outside the box, that we could be, we could be an individual and not. We cannot not to be a group, you know. Afraid, you know, it's Richard, Richard Bach has a beautiful, beautiful line. What the caterpillar calls a disaster, the butterfly calls birth. Yeah. So afraid of losing the security of our present situation. And we don't realize that if we're not prepared to take the risk, we're not going, ever going to become the people we could be. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but that's that's the nature of fear. And, and when my when my clients are on the other side, uh, that what we're getting from their interaction with the souls that are above us in a sense or more evolved, and they say that fear is our number one, is the number one thing that's holding us back from our evolved. Uh, you know, they say work on your fears. You know, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I made that up yeah. myself. Just. <laughs> 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 so Arthur, you're in Tucson, are you? I am. Or, yes. I just was in Tucson for the first time in my life uh, one month ago on my birthday, and oh. uh, we stayed at a resort uh, about uh, about ten miles from downtown, up in the mountains. There was a couple of real nice golf courses there, the Marriott, and uh, was it a Marriott sure. or I think it was the Marriott or something there. Oh. I actually I didn't think I'd like Tucson at all, but I loved it. You know, That's it was just a place. It's beautiful. In fact, people from Ari who are not from Arizona, before I came to Tucson, I thought Tucson, Phoenix, you know, what's the difference? They're both in Arizona. It's a huge difference. It's, it's a like big, a, see, I pictured people. it, I pictured it to be like a little Phoenix, but it wasn't. It was its own thing. No, no, we went to no. the biosphere, the biosphere uh, out there, which yeah, was very you. interesting. Yeah, very it's interesting. fascinating. Not yeah. only in terms of what they did in terms of the science, but also in terms of what the people who went on that program learned about themselves. It was very, very interesting. Sociological yeah. As well as yeah, people look it up. If you took up the, bi they're on Biosphere 2 now, which is not like Biosphere 1. But Biosphere 1, um, like 16 people or 15 people decided to go into this environment and not leave for years, you know, where they were trying yeah. to be self-sustainable. And some things happened that they weren't able to do that. But boy, they did learn a lot about, yeah. about uh, which I think um, has helped. And the one man that we met there, he'd been there for 40 years now, um, you know, oh. uh, uh, overlooking the place. Like, and uh, he had some stories, <laughs> you know, about human nature and, uh, sure. and that, you know. So anyway, yeah. little just side thing there. But I'd really, I'd go back to Tucson again. But Phoenix... You know, don't need to go there. Phoenix, you wouldn't even know you were in in, in the desert. I mean, you, you there are most of Phoenix. You can't even see the mountains. You, yeah, you wouldn't know where you were. Yeah. Hmm. Well, next time you're in Tucson, let me know. You know, we'll we'll have a beer. Oh, I'd like that. <laughs> Maybe when it's a hundred when it's hundred twenty degrees out, and uh, yeah, got to have a cold yeah. beer. That's the only thing yeah. was bad. I was there in a good time. It was. Just as the blooms, all the blooms were coming out in the cactus and and that and the desert was actually very beautiful. 
Yeah, actually, it's not a desert. It's, it's called the Sonoran Desert, but really, it's a, technically, it's a wilderness because there's a lot of flowers and a lot of vegetation and all this yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. People hear desert, they think the Sahara. It's not the Sahara. Yeah. I had, um, in this uh, process that I do with people, the life between life process, uh, when they meet their guide or their angel that's there, um, one of the first things we ask is if they can go to a place of rejuvenation. And generally, it's a place with water. You know, there's it's like, or it's, uh, uh, but I did have one uh, where she found herself in like a desert and the guides had her, had her lay in the sand and she's going, she's in trance, you know, in hypnosis. And she's there though, and she's going, oh, I just feel the sand all over my back. And so we asked the guide, what's this doing? She was saying, well, the sand acts as a filter. And her laying in the sand, she was feeling her, her the sand was kind of going through her body in a sense, pulling out all the negativity and all the pain and that. So it ended up being a good thing, but it was an, an interesting thing, just lying in the sand, you know. Uh, I have to just so you know, it, uh, the Hebrew word for for wilderness or desert is midbar, and the Hebrew word for speaking is medaber. It's the same root consonants and things like that. Hmm. So you have all of these spiritual uh, revelations taking place in the desert and in the Hebrew and in Arabic as well. What's really happening is it takes the desert, midbar, to speak to you, medaber, spiritually. Why? Because when we're in our cities and our towns with our computers and all mm -hmm. this kind of stuff, we're surrounded by so much man-made things, we lose sight of the spiritual in that whole realm. But out in the desert, you're forced to come in contact with the real, you know, natural processes of reality. And the language reflects that. I mean, bar medaber, it's fascinating. Language is unbelievable, too. It's amazing yeah. what kind of insight. You get just by studying the language people use to reflect their terms. Yeah, that's uh, Arthur. I wish I had your wisdom there, all your your knowledge. Um, <clears throat> I've studied. I did comparative religions for a while, but I I skimmed through everything just to get a gist of everything. But I uh, I never uh, <laughs> what happened to me there. <laughs> Here we go. My computer keeps going out on me. But anyway, but yeah, I. I I wish I'd studied more in depth, but for me, you know, at least I got a, a, a wide range of, uh, you know, got the gist of, of most of the different religions. Yeah, everything you did brought you to where you are today. What yeah. happened before is only relevant if it helps you decide where to go tomorrow. Yeah. Don't dwell on what you could have done. You dwell on what you can do now. Yeah. The reason why in a car, the windshield in the front is so much bigger than the rear view mirror. You look in the past, but just a little bit. Uh, the windshield front is what counts. Wow. I love your, you have a great analogies there. Those are great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Arthur. Well, thank uh, you, Arthur, yeah. for being here. This has been an, a tremendous, yes. amazing conversation. And, and there's been many times where I wish I would have read more, or been able to read more, you know, and get some more knowledge. But my brain just doesn't want to do it. Every time I pick up a book, I, I almost want to put it down because my knowings want to come out more. So I appreciate you having the word knowledge and the book knowledge for a lot of the things that, that the world really needs right now because we're we're in this crossroads. So thank you. Thank you for my having pleasure. this book. It, it's it's an interest, it sounds like a very interesting book. I, I, I'm 
I'm tempted to try to read it. So, <laughs> you know, I, I do. I think your book is a great uh, bridge for people to connect with their spirituality because they mm -hmm. get rid of all the clutter and they go, because, you know, what, what Arthur's saying has got to ring true to so many people. So uh, tell me the, the name of your book one more time so people can hear it again. It's a theology for the rest, for the rest of, us. of us. The compliment I've gotten about it is that it's made things accessible to people who were always afraid to ask these kinds of questions because they didn't want to look dumb. Yeah. So now they feel, you know, competent to be able to, they have permission to ask and approach these questions in ways they were always intimidated from doing before. So that's great. That's great. That's greater. It's great, Arthur. Yes, it's a book, exactly. a book for the times we're in right now, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you, Arthur, right, for thanks, being Arthur. here. Um, I'm I'm Natasha Venter. I am a psychic medium. I really enjoy helping people go through things. And Regan Forston, a hypnotherapist with the Newton Institute, we're here to help. Please uh, watch us on a Wednesday show, um, Life Clarifications with Natasha. I'll be talking about um, how to become, why dyslexia can bring our spirituality out. And what does, how did my dyslexia help awaken my knowings and help me persevere through my story. So it's with that, it's an alternative learning style. It's not a handicap. No, it definitely is not. It, it is totally an awakening. And I know a lot of, a lot of dyslexics that are very intuitive and they trust it more than they trust themselves sometimes that intuitiveness. So, uh, and, and this here, if anybody wants to listen to a podcast, these shows are on podcasts look for them at uh, life clarifications with natasha and both regan and i visit the afterlife and angelicclarifications.com is how you can reach regan and i so blessings yeah. everyone i know it's been late and it's a long show today so thank you all Re Thanks, um, arthur. arthur can can you stay around for just a minute so thank you all for watching and we will see you four o'clock pacific time on um on uh my Facebook page and my YouTube page, Mondays and Wednesdays. Thank you all. Uh, and podcast. Here we go.